saw several people, actually elders, slipping their deacon ballots into the box back there. There is still time. Uh, the deadline is midnight tonight. Actually, the building's going to close way before midnight, I hope. Um, but you can get those in tonight, and, and the process of, of looking through those will start this week. Um, but that's important, an important part of the life of this church, and we don't do it all that often, so please um, take time before you leave if you're not already to just jot some names down um, and pray over the church and the process in general. So um, tonight we're going to start a series that... that uh, has to do, I think, with intimacy with God. It has to do with, it's hard to know how to brand the series, but I would say intimacy with God would be kind of the center of what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months or so. And that means, if you're wondering, what's intimacy with God? Cultivating a deeper relationship with God. A deeper relationship, a friendship, uh, being known by God and knowing God. And part of that, obviously, I mean, this is like the no-brainer in a relationship. If you know somebody, I mean, kind of the the basic thing would be you, you at least know their name. Um, I mean, that would be kind of the starting point there, and hopefully you learn more about them, but it's, you could hardly say you're friends with somebody if you, don't, if you don't know their name, right? And as I was working this week on, on that idea of, of names and naming, I was thinking about one of our ministers, Gary Cohorn. I don't know if he's made it in here tonight, but, but it's kind of interesting. John Scott can back me up on this. So Gary Cohorn our singles minister, good friend, great partner in, in the work here. But interesting thing about Gary Cohorn. So, uh, Gary, are you in the room? He's not. That makes this even easier. So, uh, so he spells his name, Gary Cohorn, C-O-C-H-R-A-N. Yeah. Cochran. Yeah, Cochran, right. I mean, any normal person would look at that and say, Gary Cochran. But it's super handy because his whole family, it's handy, his whole family pronounces Cohorn, so it's handy because when people call the church office from a call screening perspective and they're like, yeah, I need to talk to my friend Gary Cochran, we're like, you don't know him. I mean, we don't say that, but you're like, okay, this is a low priority call. They don't even know him, you know? Um, so it does, it does help out sometimes uh, to figure out who, who the insiders are, who actually knows the guy, because you have to know him fairly well, I would say, to, to look at that name and say, it's Gary Cohorn and not Gary Cochran. Now, part of knowing uh, someone is knowing their name, and in the Bible there are uh, 25, Old Testament, 25 different names uh, at least that are attached to God, 25 different names uh, of God in the Old Testament. And um, in ancient culture, names often, usually even, carried uh, significance. They meant something about the individual they were uh, attached to. And so the names of God are like that in the Old Testament. They are, there's meaning attached to those names, and if we understand them, they can help us in our relationship to God. Um, you can pray these names in your prayer life and, and speak to God using these different names even, but they do help you. And, and when I think about uh, this idea of different names that the Bible uses for God, I mean, why not just one name, you know? Why 25 different names in the Old Testament? I think about um, a story that was related to me about Winston Churchill's home on the, in the Kent countryside. The home is called Chartwell. And he lived there from 1922, uh, well before he achieved any international fame, until his death uh, there at Chartwell. And in the walls, or hanging on the walls of, of the home there at Chartwell, you will see different paintings, you'll see different uh, pictures of, of the life of, of Winston Churchill. There's a photograph of Churchill and Roosevelt. 
um, and, and, and other allies. Uh, his face in that picture is, Churchill's face is grim. It's determined. Uh, the weight of the world on his shoulders. You see attaches in the background. You see papers strewn around on tables. Obviously, serious, serious work is, is happening in that place. There's a painting. Churchill was a painter as well. He, there's a painting of his hanging on the walls at Chartwell called Tea Time at Chartwell. And it has a totally different tone to it. It is a painting of Churchill and several friends dressed in casual clothes, smiling, having an ordinary tea time around a table. There are no cares of the world present in that piece of art. In the corridor, there is a photograph of Churchill in uniform standing up in a car riding through uh, lines of soldiers flashing that famous V for victory with a big cigar hanging out of his mouth. Um, he, is, he is surrounded by uh, the emblems of war, and you can see this is, a, this is a leader leading in wartime. Then in a quiet room there at Chartwell, adorned with easels and paint pots, there is a photo of Churchill at rest. He is at a villa in Switzerland, and he's painting beside a lake. Uh, this photo of him painting was taken in 1946. His party had just lost the elections in Great Britain, so he's unemployed. He is totally at rest, no cares. He is a man who is retired, essentially, and he's got, again, the cigar hanging out of his mouth, and he is alone, and he's painting this lake. So these four pictures of Church Churchill are, are all very different images of this one man, but each evokes its own atmosphere and each uh, inspires its own individual response from the viewer. Now, I think we could agree it would be confusing, it would be jarring, it would be off-putting if you tried to lay each of those pictures on top of each other and create like this composite uh, of all four in one image, a super portrait, if you will, um, to just kind of mash them all together and reduce them sort of to the lowest common denominator. Uh, that would just be kind of jarring. It would just be a bunch of visual noise. Um, but through the different distinct individual portraits, of the same person, we get to know him, we get to see the diversity and the continuity of this man. And I think our appreciation for Churchill is enhanced by considering and holding each of those images in our minds and not trying to just mash them all together. Well, the Hebrew Bible, like I said, gives 25 distinct names for God. Uh, 25 portraits of the God that we gather to worship. And one thing that we should walk away, before we get into any of what those names mean or which are those names, one thing it tells us is that the God that we gather to worship is a God who very obviously wants to be known, wants his people to appreciate the different facets of who he is. Um, he's not a distant deity. He's not like the God of, of Buddhism or, or 
the God of Eastern religion, a, an impersonal force of some sort. He's a God who wants to be known on a personal level, who wants a relationship, who wants to be enjoyed, appreciated, experienced in all of his complexity. So we're going to introduce one tonight, and I thought the way to start out uh, this series would be, let's start with the most generic. Okay, if there's a vanilla name for God, and I'll tell you why it is, this would be it, and it's Elohim. Elohim, God, mighty creator. And so I think it is a good one to start out with, as we, we're going to get very specific next week with the most personal name for God, but we're going to start with the most generic name. As a matter of fact, it's so generic that Elohim is the name the Bible uses to talk not only of our God, but also the pagan gods, the Canaanite gods, um, the false gods of the surrounding cultures. They were Elohim as well. And basically that name, it's like our English word God, um, it's just the generic name. Okay, Buddhism has God, uh, Islam has a God, this, that, there are a bunch of gods out there. It's just a generic lowercase uh, God in that sense. It's something or someone uh, who is or that is revered or worshipped. Um, so it is used to speak of our God, of the God of Israel, of the God of the Bible, and it is also used to speak of other gods. But the God that Israel worshipped, the Elohim that Israel worshipped, is, of course, quite different. After the Israelites were dramatically and powerfully rescued out of Egypt, delivered from their captivity, and sent along their way toward the promised land, uh, there is a conversation that we have recorded for us in the book of Exodus between Moses and Jethro. Okay, you remember Jethro uh, is the father of Zipporah, so he's Moses' wife's father, and they have this conversation. And it says in verses 9 to 12 of Exodus 18 that Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things because Moses had been in his household for, for decades and then went back on this mission from God to Egypt to rescue the people. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other Elohim, than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law in the presence of God. Now, another, probably another sermon or another sideline that we don't need to chase down is, was Jethro actually a worshiper of the God of Israel? That's unclear. It appears if he wasn't before, he is here. Okay, <laughs> He certainly is worshiping the God of Israel here. Uh, he was a priest of some sort, uh, but it's unclear which gods he served as a priest for. But here, he's drawn by what God has done for his people to worship the God of Moses, the God of Israel. David, of course, established as king, the second king of Israel, was convicted at one point late in his career, kind of a legacy moment that God needed a temple. He's like, David, I'm David, I'm the king, I have a palace. Our God does not have a place 
uh, does not have a temple. And so he's convicted of that. And we have this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 22 to 24, and we learn a little more about this name. How great you are, O sovereign Lord, there is none like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? One nation, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem, to purchase as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their Elohim, their gods, from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Who's like you, God? Who's like you? So this Elohim, the God of Israel, is different (laughs) because he's real. He, He actually exists. He's alive. He's not a man-made God. He's not a concoction. He's not an invention. He's not a a wood carving or a silver etching or stone that's been turned into an idol. He's real. Um, So Israel's Elohim is a creator. The other are creations. All right. Um, so throughout much of the Old Testament, we have this constant problem. Probably there's a stronger word than that. We have this constant problem that arises, and it keeps coming up. God's people worship Him, serve Him, and it's a problem because at the same time, they are also incorporating worship and service to other gods, to other Elohim. They're worshiping God, and they're worshiping the Elohim of the nations around them as well. And that's a problem that we just keep seeing. It just keeps popping up. Um, and here's a comment. The, the prophets, often in the Old Testament, the prophets, their strongest words are preached to Israel about that, about that particular problem. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet says, As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings, and their officials, their priests, and their prophets, they say to, to wood, they say to wood, You are our father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs on me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have... As many gods as there are towns, O Judah. Um, (laughs) So all of these lowercase gods, if you will, lesser gods, these Elohim who the people are constantly turning to and creating and purchasing at the market or going up on the high place to worship, uh, they would find themselves in danger. They would find themselves in a place of pain or need, and they would begin asking these man-made gods to help them. If things got really desperate, then they would start talking to the God of Israel. And Jeremiah says, hey, just keep praying to those blocks of stone and those blocks of wood you made. How's that working out for you? 
And there's a little bit of comedy in this too. I mean, basically, I mean, essentially he's saying you almost need a program to keep up with all of these gods. There are as many gods out there as there are towns. Um, so many gods that you all are worshiping, he says. And God's word is essentially, good luck with that. Um, you're in trouble. You're in a crisis situation. You're desperate. And you're calling out to that block of wood that you say is your father or that block of stone that you believe gave birth to you. Good luck with that. Um, We'll see how that works out. And this gets us, I think, to a place of a touch point for us. Um, and it's kind of the danger for us because, I mean, idolatry, pagan gods, people bowing down before some little shrine or some little altar. It's so ancient. It's so something you would see in archaeology or Indiana Jones or something. It's so distant from us in the modern world, so detached from our reality. Um, And that's dangerous because it's not detached from our reality. Um, It's dangerous because it's certainly not foreign to our world and to our culture. Um, Honestly... As I was thinking about it this week, our modern idols are no more sophisticated than those ancient blocks of stone and rock and bronze. No more sophisticated than those ancient pagan idols. I mean, today, if, if someone from another planet was looking at us, they would see people that are worshiping celebrities, essentially, spending all day long following someone on Twitter and what, you know, the ins and outs of some, rela- of some relationship of some stars that they don't even know and will never meet. Uh, they idolize those people. They elevate their career to the status of my job is the most important thing in my life. I mean, what's more American than that? Uh, elevate beauty, elevate success, to the point where on the idol of success, they'll sacrifice their own family, won't spend time with their kids, and so they just watch their family uh, disintegrate. Um, Yeah, so I would say the Elohim of our age are are many. Um, They're modern, uh, but they're still man-made. The Elohim of our age are still man-made creations. And we begin to uncover what those Elohim are when we find ourselves, like the Israelites, in a place of pain, in a place of discomfort, a place of danger, a place of crisis, a place of change. What is it that we are bowing down before? What is it that we are trusting in to save us? Because that is, according to Jeremiah, that is the one thing these false gods cannot do. They cannot save us. Isaiah 45, verse 20. (laughs) Gather together and come, you fugitives from surrounding nations. What fools they are who carry around their wooden idols and pray to gods that cannot save. Translation, what an idiot you have to be to get on your knees before a block of wood imagining that block of wood is going to do something to save you. Um, it's really tragically sad, right? Tragically sad. Praying to gods that cannot save. Trusting in gods who cannot deliver. 
J.R. Vassar wrote a book called Glory Hunger, God the Gospel, and Our Quest for Something More. And in this book, he shares a story about his travels a while back in Myanmar or Burma. And, and as they're traveling, they come upon a broken Buddha, a broken statue of, of the Buddha. He says this, One day we were prayer walking through a large Buddhist temple when I witnessed something heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and desperate, were bowing down to a large golden Buddha. They were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built. The Buddha had begun to deteriorate, and a group of workers were, was diligently repairing the broken Buddha. I took in the scene. Broken people were bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives, while someone else was fixing the broken Buddha. The insanity and despair of it all hit me. We are no different from them. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory-deficient people looking to other glory-deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. It is futile to look to other glory-hungry people to satisfy our glory hunger, and doing so leaves our souls empty. So Isaiah tells us what we already know, and really what all people either have come to know by personal experience or will for sure come to know through personal experience, and it's this, these alternate gods, they cannot ultimately save. Um, they promise much, they deliver little. Our Elohim, our God saves. And that alone is true of the God revealed in Scripture. Another big difference between Israel's Elohim and this pantheon of Elohim in the cultures around them are that while the nations made their Elohim, um, the Elohim of Israel made Israel. He was their creator. He was their maker. And so the Israelites were considered, I mean, this is, it's shockingly weird, let's say this, to everyone else around Israel. Just strange um, that while everyone else was manufacturing their gods, it was actually forbidden. It was forbidden in the Torah um, to make an image of God, to have a graven image of God. And that was something very strange and very different. You don't see that in other pagan cultures. Um, this, they, all, they were all making images. Israel, it was against their religion. 
And it makes sense when you understand that the God of Israel is, in fact, the maker of all things. And so carving an image uh, of him out of some material object could only demean him, could only lessen him. A created thing could never embody the creator, fully at least. Um, So in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, first chapter of the Bible, we are told the Elohim created everything that is. And an interesting side note there in Genesis 1, uh, God is called in Genesis 1, is revealed as the Elohim. And what's interesting there is this word Elohim is plural. Of course, El is singular. We think of El Shaddai, the God who saves, or the God who this, the God who that. But Elohim is, is plural, and that is quite interesting when you think about it. Um, a little weird once again. A plural name. First name we're given for the true God, the God of Israel. And one explanation that scholars give is that Elohim is the majestic plural. It's just a way of elevating that name, the status of that name somehow. And there may be some merit to that. But in all of our English translations, it's actually translated plural. Like Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you see this. Um, Then God said, let, what? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And we may not think about that a lot, but I think it's worthy of some meditation. It's worthy of of some thought. The very beginning of the Bible, I can't help but see the Trinity, the triune nature of God in the very beginning. Um, Even in the most generic name Scripture uses for the God of Israel, you have this revelation of His uniqueness. Our one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, we kind of think Jesus shows up, you know, in Matthew chapter 1. There he is in the manger. Jesus has finally arrived on the scene. But the Bible's actually letting us know from the beginning, uh, Jesus is on the scene. He's there. Um, Right there in Genesis 1, right there in the beginning, when God makes us in his image, Jesus is there. Jesus is part of that process. Um, and he's right here, isn't he? He's right here, still in the business of making us. Paul says that we, in, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are new creations, creations of Jesus. Um, and when we surrender our lives to Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit begin this restoration project on us, putting up their scaffolding and getting to work on our lives changing us into who we were always meant to be. And that's a really good thing. So let's stand, let's sing, and let's worship the Elohim, the God of the Bible, who we've gathered together tonight to celebrate.